Our second scripture reading this morning comes to us from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 7, verses 24 through 37. From there he set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him. And she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, let the children be fed first. For it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even a dog under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying that you may go, the demon has left your daughter. So she went home, found the child lying on the bed, and the demon was gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went the way of Sidon towards the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had impediment to his speech. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. He took him aside in private, away from the crowd, and put his fingers into his ears, and spat and touched his tongue. Then he looked up to heaven, he sighed, and said to him, Ephrathah, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus ordered them to tell no one. But the more he ordered them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astounded beyond measure, saying, He has done everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. This ends the reading of God's holy word. May God add many blessings to the hearing of it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Friends, John Calvin once wrote that the book of James was an epistle made of straw. John Calvin couldn't stand the book of James. He wanted it torn from the Scriptures. I think it's because John was, Calvin was so into being saved by faith alone. The James suggestion that faith leads to works and is a sign that we cannot be saved without faith and works was offensive to Calvin. But it raises a question. If you could tear out a book or a passage or a verse from Scripture, if you could make it so it's no longer the Holy Word, what would it be? And this this is an actual question. This isn't rhetorical. I want to know what you guys think. Is there a passage that you would do away with, that you would get rid of if you could? Maybe it's the one about the rich man going, or easier to get for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than a rich man to enter into heaven. Or maybe it's the passage where Jesus tells the young rich ruler to go sell everything he has and to give his money to the poor. Or maybe it's when Paul writes that women should not speak in church, that they should submit to men. For me, our Gospel reading from the Gospel of Mark today is the one I would get rid of. I would gladly tear that out, take Sharpie, cross over it, erase it, put white out, whatever you can to get rid of it in a heartbeat. Because it is so problematic for me. 
So, of course, when I saw it come up in the lectionary, I was going to preach on James. I like the book of James. I'm not like John Calvin. In fact, if you look at the sermon title, it leads itself more to the the epistle, the reading from James. But I just couldn't do it. Especially after a few weeks ago preaching that we should wrestle with the passages that give us trouble. I couldn't not preach on this reading from Mark. And for me, it's a very problematic passage. Jesus has been traveling. Jesus wants to be alone. And a Syrophoenician woman woman comes up to him. And she comes in a very vulnerable state. She throws herself at his knees and he begs that she heals his daughter. And if we're honest, we always advocate more strongly on behalf of our loved ones than we advocate on behalf of ourselves. And here she is begging and pleading for her daughter. I know when Hannah is sick, I would gladly take her illness on ten times over than to watch her suffer. So imagine how this woman felt. And as so often is the case, Jesus sees a woman come to him in great faith and turns around and says, Go, your illness is healed, your daughter is made well. Or at least that's how it should be. But instead, he says, it's not right for me to give food first to dogs that was intended for children. This is a borderline racial slur. He's saying that he came for the Jews. He came to save those who are God's children and calls her and her people a dog. Someone who is less than human. And I don't know what to do with that. If you were to close your eyes and picture Jesus, you'll probably picture him with long hair, you'll probably picture him smiling or looking serene, maybe surrounded by gospels or children or sheep. But you wouldn't picture him degrading another person by calling them a dog. So I went to see how other scholars dealt with this. And some, like I want to do, just pass right over, ignore it, be la la la, I didn't hear that, and keep going. Others say that he said it with kind of a twinkle in his eye, that he was joking with her, jesting with her. Others have thought that he might have been testing her, seeing how much she wanted, how persistent she would be. But that's cruel. And the Scriptures don't support that. The one option that gave me hope is maybe that there is some nuance in the Greek language that has been lost over the years that we don't really understand what he was saying. But I don't think that's the case. So that leaves us with only a couple of options, and they're both troubling. The first option is that Jesus does not yet have full understanding of who he is as a Messiah. That his understanding of being the incarnation of God is still developing. And that's troubling to us because we like to think of Jesus as all-knowing because God is all-knowing, but we forget that Jesus is fully human. And we have to remember that two or three-year-old Jesus probably didn't have understanding that he came to save all of humanity. 
So maybe he doesn't quite understand that his mission, that he was sent here to save all of humanity, not just the Jews. And that's troubling, but the other one is more troubling. That even Jesus, even the best of us, even the incarnation, falls prey to a system of oppression and racial bias. That even God with us gets trapped up in these human systems designed to dehumanize others. And that there's no escaping it. And I really wrestle with that. And I wrestle with that, holding that against the idea that Jesus is without sin and try to hold them in tension and contrast. What it would it mean if the incarnation of Jesus himself got caught up in these systems? I can only name a handful of people from my third grade class. I could name Sherry Rumsey because I had the biggest crush on her. I could name my friends Peter and David. I could name Tony because I saw him get the most gruesome injury that I've ever seen in a soccer game as his shin bone came through his leg and he was later in a half-body cast. And I can name Chrissy. And Chrissy is the one who I carry around with me every day. She is the one I think of. Chrissy transferred into our class and she was African-American. And I don't remember ever getting to know her and I don't remember how long she was there. It wasn't a full school year. But I remember she was shunned. She was looked down on. And I don't know if this was black, if it was because she was new to the class, because I don't really remember anything about her except for her race and her name. And I remember the day that the office came and got her out of our class because she'd transferred to another school because she was leaving for some reason. As soon as that door closed behind her, our class applauded. And I carry that weight with me because I participated in it. And I don't remember why, but it pains me still 20, 30 something years later. Because we all fall prey to those systems of racism and oppression. I was raised in a very open-minded household, but we still get caught up in it. And it might not be as obvious as we get older, as we become more conscientious, but we still have those subtle, those unconscious biases. A few weeks ago, Heather had a meeting or or something at at night, and so Hannah and I had a daddy-daughter date night. And we went to Bowie Town Center, and we went to Three Brothers Pizza for dinner because Hannah loves spaghetti and pizza, and I thought this will be fun. And as we were getting out of the car, a group of four or five young black men came walking by. And I clenched inside a little bit. It wasn't because I thought they were going to hurt me or hurt Hannah or because they were up to no good. But now I worry that they're going to judge me because I have a daughter who's another race. Because that's something I've encountered. And simply because they look different from me, I have a little bit of fear in that. And they really shattered that when one of them said, God bless you, you have a beautiful daughter. And again, that same guilt and pain returned. 
because I judged someone who looked different than me. Now, I don't know if the Syrophoenician woman looked different than Jesus, but we do know that he treated her differently than he would a Jew. And he did so simply because she was of a different faith, a different race, a different religion. So where is the good news in that? After all, that's what gospel means. Gospel is the good news. We are proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. But there is good news. There is good news not in Jesus' first reaction, but in the way he responds to it. He says it's not right to feed dogs food that was intended for the children. And the woman responds. She says, don't even the dogs underneath the table get crumbs from the children's plate? He uses the same dehumanizing words that he used. And his eyes are open. You could almost hear the air escape him as he takes the proverbial punch to the gut. This is the only time in the Gospels that I could ever remember Jesus changing his mind. Because he hears her. He listens. He turns her away, degrades her as less than human, but she says, aren't even those less than humans still worthy of food? Of love? Of respect? And Jesus hears those words. And he sees her for what she is, a beloved child of God. Someone in need who has come to him seeking help. And he heals her daughter. And that's where we see the good news. That's where we see the hope that Jesus hears her, that Jesus changes her mind. And that tells us that there's hope for us to change. When Jesus listens to her, when Jesus hears the words that she is saying, He not only realizes the pain and the difficulty of the life of her reality, but he realizes the brokenness of his own. And he realizes that there is a disconnect there. And through that disconnect, through that realization, he is able to change. We live in a world where we have to proclaim that black lives matter. We live in a world where I can tell the story of Chrissy, but more importantly, that I can have it brought to my mind so vividly because I read a story this week about an African-American family that moved into a house and was forced to leave because their neighbor would aim shotguns at them and yell racial slurs and continually intimidate them. We live in a world where people march with the Confederate flag proclaiming that they want white power. We live in a broken world. And we have to realize that the system of racism, the system of oppression permeates everything. Even if we don't think we're racist, 
Even if we don't think we're in positions of power, even if we have daughters who are another race, we still live in this system. There's a diagram that shows an iceberg underwater and you see the tip of the iceberg above water and that's the racism we see, but underneath is the racism that is built into the system that our world is built on. A system where people get ahead by stepping on others. A people where our pasts, our generations past, still continue to hold us down. And so we look to Jesus for hope. And when we hear words as institutional racism, when we hear white privilege, when we hear those words that are difficult and concepts to, to grasp and to accept, we need to not dismiss them. We need not to turn away, but we need to seek to understand. And when we do that, we hear the pain and the sorrow of others' reality, but we also realize the brokenness of our own. And then there can be healing. Then there could be change. Then this world could be a better place. And there is good news in that. Amen. As we prepare to approach the Lord's table, let us stand together and sing hymn number 513, Let Us Break Bread Together.